One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. I was in Quebec uh, on October 17th, or uh, actually the 18th, the day after it happened. And I left the airport and I saw a lineup going down. It must have been three blocks. And I said to someone in line, what's this for? And they said, oh, the cannabis store is down there. And I was just flabbergasted. It was amazing. As you just heard, we're talking about Canada becoming the first G7 country to officially have legal cannabis. We're speaking to John Hiltz, who's a cannabis journalist, the author of The Wild West, Canada's legalization of marijuana. You're listening to Stop and Search on Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST in association with UK. Here we go. Behind your barricade. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricade. Where true values seldom stray. Thank you so much for joining us again. As I said, this is Stop and Search. We're going to be zooming in on what's going on on Canada and their legalisation of marijuana. It's only been one month at the time recording this, so we're going to find out lots about the brass tacks of what's going on in terms of regulation, how it's been received by the population, the media, all of these things we need to address. It's all in this episode. There's a lot to take on. So thank you so much, John Hiltz, for, for taking this issue on with us. He's a cannabis journalist. He's the author, as I said, of The Wild West, Canada's Legalisation of Marijuana, a fantastic book which I totally need to read. So let's get straight on with this. What's going on in Canada? So I'm joined by John, and thank you so much for joining me, John, because goodness knows I need to learn a lot from you of what's going on. But you're the author of The Wild West, Canada's Legalisation of Marijuana, and this is something that the UK has been having a very, very big eye on because you're the first G7 to legalise cannabis. That's pretty huge, I'd say. So let's let's get straight to the beginning. So if I can get a quick introduction from you of who you are, what your roles are, if that's okay. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I started, I mean, I know that you and I met uh, over the phone a couple of years ago uh, when I was a cannabis journalist for a company called Weed Maps out of California. Um, and uh, I worked for uh, the publication Marijuana.com. So I've been a journalist in the cannabis industry for almost three years now, uh, and actually over three years now, and my job has been essentially to cover the domestic and uh, international markets uh, of the emerging cannabis industry. Uh, so, and since then, uh, I have actually left my post with marijuana.com. I still write for them, but, uh, I now work as the director of business development for a licensed cannabis producer, uh, in Canada. We're called Indiva. I mean, that in itself is fascinating. The fact that we've got, especially in Canada and the United States, cannabis journalism on its own right. I mean, here we've got vice and things like that. But to actually have specific areas now for cannabis just shows how big the subject is, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's uh, Cannabis journalism is actually a cottage industry now. We have magazines solely dedicated. And I'm not talking like, you know, the typical pothead magazines that one would assume. Uh, we actually have very reputable media outlets that have started their own publications solely dedicated to the, uh, the covering the emerging cannabis industry, the financial, uh, the social impacts, uh, everything to do with it. And uh, I'm happy to be a writer for a few of those. It is, it's pioneering industry because you see it all the time in, especially in America as well, there's a lot of syndications going on now as well with some big media names getting involved in this and as you said with, with, with what weed maps did it was pretty innovative i think 
Oh yeah, Weed Maps. Uh, for those who don't know their business model, it's actually pretty fascinating. Uh, they uh, were very forward-thinking, and uh, I can't remember how many years ago they essentially invented an app, which you would tap in your location, and wherever you were, it would tell you the closest uh, the closest uh, dispensary or the closest place you can buy cannabis. Uh, to your location, provided there were things like dispensaries. It wouldn't give you, for example, the names of dealers. Uh, but if there were any sort of uh, clandestine clandestine retail outlets uh, that exist, Weed Maps will tell you how to get there. And so then they, uh, they did something where they created Marijuana.com as a news outlet to help normalize cannabis so people realize that it's not the scary monster that everybody thinks it is. I mean, just, let's just let that sink in for a moment. There's an app to tell you where the best dispensary is. I mean, this is this is everything to do with, I don't know what you use the word normalisation, but certainly uh, adult responsible use is what we like to say here. If we've seen it with alcohol. You know, we've got all sorts of alcohol journalism, um, especially where I live. You know, the, the cider and the wine industry is huge. But this is exactly the same for cannabis, isn't it? There's no reason we can't have that same responsible use. Well, absolutely. In fact, I mean, you just touched on a really interesting point. Uh, I know that in the UK and surrounding countries in Europe, uh, drinking socially is a very big practice. And uh, I'm sure that I don't have to tell some of your listeners that the science is out. You know, you cannot overdose on cannabis. It's, it's impossible. Uh, there, and one of the main reasons that I've been told is because the human body, uh, in fact, any mammal, has natural cannabinoid receptors. In, and it has an endocannabinoid system that's specifically designed to intake uh, substances like that. When you drink alcohol, your body does not have an alcohol receptor. Uh, it just tries to process it through the liver as fast as possible. So, you know, for example, for me, if I drank a bottle of Jack Daniels tonight, I'd find myself in the hospital uh, because I would be very ill. But I've smoked, I've smoked, I've smoked my weight in cannabis, uh, and uh, I've woken up the next morning and I've been fine. See, if I had a thimble of Jack Daniels, I'd be in the hospital. And I'm that much of a <laughs> we call it lightweight here. It's, a, it's a very much a, a, a southern slang. Call it a lightweight, but I am totally. I hold my hands up to that. So let's let's mm -hmm. get into the backstory of how Canada became the first G7 country to legalize. As we know, other than Uruguay, who who went ahead and did it before you, you are pioneering in this. There's certainly no Western country that's that looked at doing this on the level that you have. So let's start at the very very beginning. What happened to get a, a medical system in place? Because you started off, like most countries do, going through a medical route. Uh, what was the backstory behind that and what kind of time are we talking about? Yeah, no problem. Well, in fact, uh, when you're referring to medical cannabis, Canada was the first to uh, create a medical cannabis uh, system. And it was because back in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was a huge push from patients with uh, who were suffering from things like uh, severe multiple sclerosis, uh, HIV, AIDS, uh, cancer treatment, and, uh, and the like, some really bad conditions. And um, what these people did was they created a Supreme Court challenge uh, I believe it was the Supreme Court, but it was a very high court in Canada. And they brought in uh, these cases basically saying that, look, I mean, cannabis may not be a medicine, but it is providing these people who suffer from these conditions uh, relief. And so the ruling, uh, the justice basically determined that it is unconstitutional in Canada to deny somebody relief from these ailments uh, even if that substance is currently illegal. And so because of that, the Canadian government was forced to ratify uh, the um, some of the laws so that uh, these people could uh, get cannabis in some form. And that was the early beginnings, the very crude beginnings of what is now a very robust medical marijuana system. Uh, and, uh, oh, sorry. How ahead. did that suit? How did that suit people? Because one of the criticisms that we heard here, and I don't know if this is true, is that it was quite restrictive. It was very, um, it was very done by the book. It, is that true? Is it was it quite prohibitive by its very nature? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you, one could argue that it was still a step forward, 
where these people can then, uh, for example, grow their own or have somebody grow for them. But uh, it was incredibly restrictive. And even to this day, it's restrictive. Doctors in Canada uh, do not know, or at least they feel they do not know enough about cannabis to uh, actively prescribe it for people. So you can get a doctor to prescribe it for you, but we're talking a handful uh, to the point where the Canadian Medical Association has even said now that we have recreational marijuana, they want to phase out the medical system um, because they just don't want the doctors to have the responsibility of having to prescribe it, which I personally think is ridiculous. I do believe there should be medical marijuana, but... Uh, but that's uh, a debate, an ongoing debate. But in answer to your question, yes, it was restrictive and uh, it's opened up a little more over the years, but it still continues to be hard to find prescriptions for, for cannabis. So that's fascinating because that plays completely into the conversation we're having here at the moment in the UK because we've technically just had medical marijuana pass or, or medical cannabis depending on... Do you say marijuana or cannabis, by the way? I say both, marijuana, cannabis, ganja, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and, and over here, I mean, I was critical to start with, um, and we are finding that, that we're probably mirroring what you're saying of there may be a step forward, but at the same time, you're now putting this in the hands of the medical professions that aren't necessarily confident enough to do anything with it. So therefore, there's this red tape layer of prohibition that's coming in. And do you think that that remotely has been a driving force to get people to be active to do more towards a fuller legalization model yeah well it certainly helped because um a lot of the people who couldn't find access to proper medical cannabis over the last 20 years were still forced to buy it from the black market so right. what then what it fueled was and i'm sure that the uk has a bunch of these as well you have activists that put their freedom on the line because they know that there are medical patients who want cannabis and so they end up getting it and essentially starting what would be compassion clubs uh so these people would go to these compassion clubs and essentially the people selling you the cannabis they are breaking the law and uh, and a lot of them did it. I mean, you could argue that some of them did it to make a profit, but a lot of them did it because they truly believed that the Canadian public needed access to medical cannabis and they simply weren't getting it. And I have to agree, um, you know, so what it did was it fueled the uh, the insatiable demand uh, that we have for cannabis in Canada and in turn kept the ball rolling to the point where we were actually able to cross the finish line uh, on October 17th and have recreational cannabis across the country. So from that point, do you think that there was uh, the social movement, because this is one that I'm always asking this question, but the social movement, do you think that played a massive part within the full reform that you're seeing now has it been a top-down movement or a bottom-up is what i'm basically getting at i would say it was a bottom-up um the the government had no choice at the end of the day i don't know what the uh, exact percentages are but canada is among the highest uh for cannabis users per capita in the world uh, you could argue that it has something to do with the cold weather, so we're inside a lot and we have nothing to do. Uh, but, you know, having said that, the, we just have a ton of cannabis smokers uh, right across the country. And because of that, the government basically said that, I mean, uh, on paper, the government said, oh, well, you know, the Canadians, uh, we want everybody to have a healthy supply. And they're saying that that was the reason. They want to stamp out the black market so there's a healthy supply. In truth, or at least what I believe is the truth and many of my colleagues believe is the government wanted to cash in on the fact that many Canadians were smoking cannabis and they were cut out of the deal. All this money was being funneled into what they call the black market and the government wasn't able to uh, to do anything about it. So it's a if you can't beat them, join them. Uh, type scenario where finally they said we, we got a prime minister in power who was uh, empathetic enough to want to legalize and so he pushed it through and thank goodness he was ex he was successful that's going to be one of the questions i asked you actually is the uh, the political setup is is obviously going to be crucial to any kind of reform and what we're seeing here is that we've had a conservative-led government for essentially since 2010 what has been the political landscape in Canada over the last two decades, probably? 
Well, that's a good has, question. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, has it been conservative? Because this is one of the things, we, I think one of the reasons why we're all angled here at looking at what your model is doing is because I think that the UK and Canada have got this synergy we're a little bit more closer related to you than what we are potentially in other North American areas. So I'm very interested to know what the political landscape has been. Yeah. Oh, that's a very good question. Um, the There was a conservative government previous for, I believe it was 10 years, uh, run under Prime Minister Harper. And so Prime Minister Harper didn't stifle the process because he his hand was forced to do something about it by the justice system. Uh, the you know the justice system was essentially the driving force. Uh, you know a lot of court challenges and uh, constitutional challenges that led to the government having to do something. Uh, so, but he always did the absolute bare minimum uh, in order to essentially make this a thing. So then later on, right before uh, prime, but f- since 2014, um, it was late 2014, I believe that's when Trudeau was voted in, or actually 2015. Uh, that is when uh, the thing, the whole thing changed hands, and it switched from a conservative government to a liberal government. And once that happened, the liberal government said, we are going to, as a campaign promise, he said, we are going to legalize recreational cannabis. And of course, that is when uh, the whole country broke open, and, uh, and, and here we are today. And again, that's a fascinating point in itself. And just to remind everybody that I'm talking to John Hiltz, the author of The Wild West, Canada's Legalization of Marijuana. And, and this is why I really wanted to speak to you specifically to know what's going on, because what your book does is, is detail this whole process, doesn't it? It gives you a, such a good background on how you got to where you are. And the point you just made there about what, um, what the Liberal Prime Minister did of making a campaign promise, actually going out there and making it a part of the election, that had to be huge, surely. Yes, that was actually a big risk on his part, from my opinion. I, even though you have a lot of Canadian uh, cannabis users, um, you have there are there is still a, a good portion of the country uh, that vote uh, conservative. So uh, our prime minister um, essentially somewhat put his uh, his name on the line because he was risking not being taken seriously. He's a very young man. Uh, and so he's applying for the top leadership job in the country. And so he already has these older people looking down going, oh, my God, he's, you know, he's really young. What does he know? You know, all that sort of thing. And on top of it, he wants to legalize weed. So he, he risked coming off of sort of like as a frat boy. Uh, but thankfully, in the end, I mean, one of the things that he had going for him, Justin Trudeau, we're talking about, is his father is one of the most celebrated prime ministers that Canada has ever had. So he backed it up essentially with his name and the country took a chance on him and he made good on this particular promise. Do you think it was considered choice that he... he, There must have obviously been a lot of backroom talks of do we go with this issue? And do you think the confidence was there? Do you think that because of the social movements that have been built up until that point, that they felt that confident enough that actually this could be a vote winner. Yeah, I believe that uh, the liberal, it wasn't just uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, it was a number of liberals who probably got together and they clearly saw uh, at that time there were uh, the early beginnings of these large corporations uh, that were growing cannabis under the new uh, I, under the uh, the new cannabis laws, uh, I forget the exact acronym, but so they would be they were already starting to become these large scale corporations, and so um, based on that, the liberal government must have got together and run the numbers and said, hey, you know, we can really do something here, uh, and then they they came out with their plan, and it was a very muddy water it was a lot of muddy waters to wade through uh you know reintegrating cannabis something that was uh prohibited for 95 years uh and uh it turns out you know releasing the shackles of prohibition was a lot more challenging than seemed on paper but but we did it i was going to say that that is probably the the big question i need to ask is that so canada went to the polls they voted in trudeau what happened then so Essentially, he got the mandate that cannabis legalization can go ahead. Um, at what point was that fully signed up and said, right, okay, Canada's now done it. What was the process there? Uh, what he did was um, <clears throat> he created, uh, first and foremost, 
uh, a he obviously made his intentions clear once more when he was voted in, and then he created what was called the Cannabis Task Force, which consisted of top doctors, uh, people from law enforcement, uh, also uh, regulators. Uh, uh, it was essentially, I think, a group of six people uh, who got together and their entire job was to assess uh, how we could integrate cannabis as a system within the country. Uh, that includes where is it going to be sold? What's the minimum age? Um, you know, uh, what, what are the levels of THC that will be allowed in our products? What will the tax be? Everything like that. And so they went out and essentially polled Canadians and traveled across the country to figure out the best way to do this. And then ultimately they came up with a loose framework and then announced that the federal government would be in charge of certain aspects. So the federal government would set a minimum age limit, and then the rest of it would be up to the provinces. Um, and so the federal government essentially said, okay, the minimum age to purchase cannabis in Canada, Canada will be 18. And then if provinces want to uh, raise that age, they are allowed to do so. And then there were a number of other things that at that point, the provinces had to figure out. They had to know um, you know, uh, how are we going to, uh, are we going to sell this in dispensaries? Is it going to be just online? A whole number of, a whole host of issues. One of the areas that we're obviously going to have to address here and probably everywhere is what is the right age limit? We've got, so we've got alcohol here is 18 in, in the United States, it's 21. I'd imagine here we'd probably err towards more of a conservative model of probably setting an age limit at 21. What was the general reaction like as you was having the discussions at a grassroots level, both in terms of people that, because there must have been individuals and groups that didn't want cannabis legalization, presumably. Oh, Does that still go on? Yes. Oh, yeah. There's a number of people. The conservatives made a very concerted effort to try and get this off of uh, the uh, minds of Canadians on a number of issues. They brought up ridiculous scenarios, like when they talked about uh, Canadians being able to grow four plants per household at home. I remember one particular conservative uh, member of parliament, her name is Marilyn Gladue, who is, I'm assuming, an intelligent human being, but when it comes to cannabis, she's incredibly ignorant. And she suggested, well, if you grow cannabis at home, what's going to stop, you know, little Johnny from going outside and taking off a piece of the plant and putting it in the toaster oven and getting high? And, you know, that, of course, led to countrywide belly laughs. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, so they, they were totally against it. And, um, interestingly enough, you know, you talk about other groups that had a hand in shaping, uh, the policy, uh, the Canadian Medical Association was polled, uh, on what the age should be for cannabis. And originally they said that it should be 25. Uh, that was the age they wanted. And their argument was that the brain develops until age 25, um, and, uh, so, but then, you know, quickly that was kiboshed because at the end of the day, the government's main goal is to stamp out the black market. And if you have, you know, one of the largest groups of people that, that obviously will buy cannabis are people in their early twenties. Uh, and so they essentially said, well, then these young people are going to be buying it from the black market. And that's the antithesis of what we want. So they ended up, uh, the Canadian Medical Association lowered it to 21, and then Prime Minister Trudeau said, well, it's going to be 18, but thank you for your, uh, your suggestions. So th that was another group, and, and there, were, there were definitely others. But I would argue that the majority of people, including law enforcement in Canada, uh, were for the idea of uh, cannabis, cannabis legalization because, you know, the cops have better things to do than arrest people for smoking a joint. Um, or at least I hope they do. Uh, you know, so, so that's that. The majority of law enforcement I talk to, uh, even if they uh, disagree with, for example, themselves smoking cannabis, they were very, they were like, yeah, we don't need this type of responsibility. We have bigger fish to fry. This is why it's been so, so interesting in watching the conversation you've been having, literally the conversation you've been having, because it has been multi criteria, hasn't it? It's not just been a case of, Right, cannabis is harmful, therefore we should keep it illegal, which predominantly is what dominates the headlines here. But you, you talk in terms of nuance, so you knew that 
if you was to set an un- unrealistic age criteria, as you said, it enforces the black market. So therefore, one of the main priorities is to, to reduce that demand and have a realistic barrier of keeping adult responsible use, but at the same time, to making sure that organised crime is tackled. And I right. think that's why Canada, Canada's just been so good because you've got that measured response. It, certainly how it appears here, at least. Have you had much in the terms of, of media backlash as well? You know, those big scary headlines that we can sometimes see here. No, and that's actually a major problem that I find when I'm reading uh, publications in the UK. I, I mean, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like these publications are all about spreading cannabis fear uh, rather than spreading cannabis normalization. Are there magazines? Are, would you agree with that statement? Yeah, pretty much. There's there's a publication we can point to instantly that very much relies on that. Um, I mean, they're award winning for their bad journalism. There's a on the <laughs> previous podcast of ours we had a, a Simon who is a, a brilliant. He was also known as Neurobonkers, and he, he's a fantastic uh, scientist journalist. And he he nominated a specific article of the Daily Mail's, which was just one cannabis joint causes schizophrenia, and there was just so <laughs> many. I glir- know oh, exactly. It's just. The context of these harms is just so inflated, and and what he pointed out is that um, in in uh, I'm no scientist as you can tell, but he he managed to pull this article apart, and he actually got it awarded the Orwellian Prize for journalistic misinterpretation, uh, which was fantastic, and yeah. he deserves it. Um, Absolutely. You know. That that uh, it's it's just so and, and that you know you you bring up actually a really good point. The one thing that nobody ever asks, uh, especially in countries that seemingly are resisting cannabis legalization, is why was it made illegal in the first place? Everyone seems to be able to s- accept the fact that even though it's been historically documented that human beings have been using cannabis in one form or another for thousands of years. Uh, it's been illegal uh, in the modern world for anywhere between 90 to 100 years, depending on what country you're talking about. And people are just so quickly willing to accept that the judgment of these people 100 years ago must have been sound. But when you actually go back, and I talk about this in my book, specifically for Canada, when you actually go back to the early days, like in Canada, on why prohibition came about, there was zero research that was done on cannabis and its effects. Nobody knew, all they knew was that the uh, powers that be were attending a lot of international conventions uh, on narcotics. And the uh, focus of those conventions was to outlaw opium because everybody was deathly afraid of opium. They saw the effects and even to this day, as you know, I don't have to tell you, there's an opiate epidemic. Uh, so their job was they wanted to make opium illegal. And part of that, at least in Canada, was because there was a lot of racism towards the Chinese and they wanted to keep them out of Canada as well. So it was a way for them to tie, uh, opium to, uh, to unfortunately to, uh, to the Chinese market and the Chinese people that were coming to Canada at the time. So as an afterthought, they were like, oh, by the way, there's this other street drug known as marijuana, and it also has psychotropic effects, and it's, you know, it doesn't put you in your right mind. So literally as an afterthought, they said, all right, let's put marijuana in there too. And it was that, it was that quick. And so it was just done out of complete and total ignorance. And because of, let's say, 70 years of propaganda on behalf of the United States and on behalf of uh, various players that wanted to keep cannabis illegal, we now, or at least some of us, believe that cannabis will cause schizophrenia if you smoke one joint, uh, which, of course, as you know, is, is complete lunacy. Uh, it's the, you know, so it's just, it's, it was a bad decision followed by years and years of compounded lies, uh, on behalf of people that wanted to keep it illegal. That's the pharmaceutical companies, the alcohol companies, uh, the people who were in timber, everybody was very, very afraid of hemp, uh, overtaking, uh, timber because it is a as you know, a very, uh, strong, uh, it's a very, uh, some great for making textiles and things like that. So it was because of that everyone's like, well, we have to keep this illegal because it's going to overtake everything. Um, and so thankfully, we're now starting to see that we were wrong. You mentioned that this is included in your book. I, I wanted to know how long 
first of all, how long did it take you to write the book? But also, was there anything in it while she was writing it and researching it that, that specifically surprised you as well? Because there must be, I mean, we're both fairly knowledgeable on the subject, but there must be things that, that it flagged up and f- uh, and also just made you look again and think, actually, when you do look at the historical precedent of this issue, it is quite surprising how things can get caught up. Yes. Um, the one thing that surprised me, uh, the book uh, took me... I would say a year and a half to write because I wanted to make sure that I covered everything up until essentially the moment that we legalized. Um, so uh, within that time, I actually found that even though I was ecstatic that Prime Minister Trudeau was voted in, uh, there was a lot that he did that made me highly critical of his actions. Uh, some of that came from the fact that um, like, for example, the United States uh, at the border, we're having a lot of problems right there right now uh, when it comes to that, where the U.S. Border Patrol uh, is uh, they, they are asking random Canadians uh, if they have ever smoked weed. And I don't mean this morning or yesterday. They want to know if you have ever smoked weed in your lifetime. And oh, wow. some Canadians who are very honest will answer Yes, yes, I did. And then that sometimes leads to a lifetime ban from entering the United States. Um, And this is actually happening now. And then uh, further to that point, anyone in Canada who is working in the legal marijuana industry, including myself, we actually could be banned at the border as well just because we work in the industry. So when it came to this, um, getting back to my point about Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, everyone, of course, turned to him to do something about it. Now, whether or not, you know, you could argue whether or not a conversation with Donald Trump would lead to any results. Uh, but having said that, Trudeau basically made a statement saying, well, I don't want to tell other countries how to, uh, you know, who they should let into their country because we wouldn't want anyone to tell us how to let into ours, you know, which is cold comfort for many of the Canadians who no longer can enter the U.S., uh, but meanwhile, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has admitted to smoking illegal marijuana, uh, and uh, he has no problem entering the U.S. on his diplomatic passport. Go figure. So, uh, you know, so, so that was one thing I was critical about when I was writing the book. Um, also, uh, I believe he really dropped the ball when it came to the U.N. issue for many, many months. Uh, all of the countries, many of the countries in the United Nations were saying, uh, they were saying to, you know, well, is Canada, we, we were party to three international drug treaties over the last 50 years uh, that essentially banned the cultivation and sale of marijuana in any form. And so he, he, he should have, and I'm, I don't even know where it is in the UN currently, but he should have brought it up with the UN and there were many different ways to ratify it. But instead, most of the time he chose to ignore it. And there are significant repercussions with that, because even though we're only talking about cannabis, if Canada looks like we are uh, negating on certain uh, treaties, there are other countries that have much more abhorrent behavior that will use that to their advantage and say, well, if Canada doesn't keep its treaties, we can ignore these treaties on things like human trafficking or cocaine or all these other things. So Trudeau... Uh, in many cases, dropped the ball there because he refused to address the issue, and uh, and people sort of uh, wondered why. But so you know, I, I don't want to go on too long here. But I guess when writing the book, I I became more critical of our prime minister than I originally thought that I was. Uh, but you can't deny the fact that he still brought legal cannabis to Canada. So ultimately, I give him a pass. Yeah, I was going to say that that is, must be a tricky position because you're right to fight the UN level conversation on this is I, I don't envy that because you know having marginal experience of what it's like at, the, at those UN briefings and meetings, it must be difficult to get across the fact that yeah we've gone ahead and done this we're the first G7 country to do it but actually technically it's still internationally illegal so how do you balance that from his side? Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, I'm not prime minister, thank goodness. So I don't have to worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's his job, not ours. We can just sit here and talk about it. (laughs) We can can talk about it. And I wouldn't, I, I'm sure he is very happy where he is. And I'm very happy where I am. The fact that you've got a legal industry and, and for someone involved in it as well, and yet you're still having international problems in crossing borders and things like that. These are all issues that 
that are going to get flagged up because you are pioneering this model? Do you think that they'll get any better, any alleviation, or do you think could it actually get worse? Uh, that's that. That's a good question. I think it depends on the political climate. I would like to believe that uh, the United States will. Uh, loosen its stance on cannabis. I believe the last numbers were even after the as the recent election just happened, you know, the Democrats took the House. Uh, it actually was very beneficial. I, I can't remember what the exact number was, but I read an article the other day uh, which stated that uh, I believe 79 million U.S. citizens are na- now have access to legal recreational cannabis. So if you do the math, uh, there's 350 million in the U.S. So it's very hard for the federal government to ignore that. And someone like Donald Trump, who is incredibly uh, into the bottom line, considering his background and, and the fact that money seems to be uh, his driving factor, uh, it's, it's almost foolish to ignore the amount of money uh, that that this is bringing in, and really the cat's out of the bag. They're not going to, you know, slow the industry down, or at least I hope they won't. So I have a feeling it's going to get better moving forward because the U.S. is essentially going to. All firstly, all we need is a new president. If the president is no longer president in 2020, then all we need is a Democratic president, and cannabis prohibition is going to fall in the U.S. Um, but and that brings up a, an interesting question that I would like to ask you, because you're surrounded by European countries that are every day getting closer to the end of cannabis prohibition. Are, do the surrounding countries around the United Kingdom, do they have any impact on domestic policy over there? Oh, that's an interesting one, especially at the moment, because what's going on, I don't know how much of this reaches you, but there's a there's an issue called Brexit that's going on. So basically, we've left mm-hmm. the European Union as of March. So whereas policy could have been slightly more dictated in the European Parliament, we're now reaching a position where we're going it alone, uh, which arguably could have benefits to, to isolated issues like this, or it could also detract from it. So if Europe as a whole was moving ahead on the issue... And all of a sudden, we've just exited it. You know, is it a case of then we've just stalled ourselves by default? Um, so you've got, like you said, we've got a lot of medical movement around the, the different European states. Um, and also things on, on broader drug policy as well. Like for, for years, uh, Sweden has been held up as a model as, as really hard line, you know, one mm-hmm. of the harshest going. But they're starting to move on things like um, heroin assisted treatment, drug consumption rooms, and things like that. So. These are all issues that are completely up in the air at the moment. I don't think there is a, a, a one specific answer that you can give. And I would always imagine that as a conservative country that has had a pretty big, horrific uh, press backlash against cannabis for so many years, I, I would imagine we'd be one of the last ones to go. But this is where I, I believe in the social movements of why I'm always asking people like yourself of how much of a part did grassroots play because I think once you get a credible grassroots movement in place it Mm -hmm. really doesn't take long to topple issues Um, and and that was one of the questions that I I specifically really want to get to the bottom with with you is right how how big both historically were your grassroots movements but also now that you have got legalization are they still playing a part? Are they still there criticizing or, or complementing the issues? Yes. Uh, essentially, that's a two-fold question. Many of the people who were involved in what would be called the gray market out here have um, essentially been absorbed into the into the legal market. Those who wanted to join, some of them have joined uh, some of the licensed producers. But then you still have a number of let's call them detractors, uh, who essentially uh, are not happy with the current system and feel that things need to be pushed forward uh, significantly. Uh, and I, I'm in the middle. I mean, there is still a lot of work to do. Um, you know, even though cannabis is legal here, uh, we, we uh, you know, it's akin to when alcohol was legalized. Uh, I think it was like, you know, God, 90 plus years ago in Canada when the fall of alcohol prohibition came. You know, it's a slow process. Um, people need to figure out, for example, proper impaired driving laws. Uh, they want to make sure that uh, the penalties that are now in place for giving cannabis to a minor aren't too excessive. 
you know, they want to make sure uh, that, uh, like, it's a, it's a combination of trying to, for lack of a better term, stamp out the black market, but also provide Canadians with the products that they expect. Because the more products and the more choice that we have in Canada for cannabis, the less the black market can function. Nobody is going in a back alley these days to buy bathtub gin anymore. Um, but if gin was not available in the liquor store, I have a feeling that there would still be a demand for it. Society finds a way one way or another, doesn't it? If, it's, That's if right. the demand is there, it's going to happen. And, and this is one of the specific areas I really do want to speak to you about is what, what does your legalization model look like? Because... Um, you mentioned here in, in Europe of what ours look like. There's a lot of movement in regards to cannabis social clubs, especially in the UK. That's potentially an avenue that will break the bigger policy here. Um, what goes on in Canada right now? So can you walk out your door, go to a shop and buy cannabis? Yep. Uh, depending on where you are, uh, in the province that I live in, in Ontario, uh, there, the shops are not ready yet, so it's all online right now. And having said that, uh, as far as I can see, uh, we've run out of cannabis almost, uh, considering the demand is far greater than they expected. But so, if you, most provinces have uh, brick and mortar stores that you can walk out your door, you walk down the street, or you take a drive if it's a little further, and you can go and buy uh, right now cannabis flour and oil. Uh, eventually. Uh, things like uh, vape pens, if people know what those are, uh, and edibles, they're going to be integrated into the sales system. Uh, but for the moment, you can buy flour, you can buy oil, and uh, and then, you know, take it home and essentially, uh, you know, you can either smoke it at home or uh, in certain provinces, there are designated areas where you can uh, consume uh, in public or private areas. Uh, but yes, essentially, you can you can do it. Is there any way in, in terms of, um, say like here, for example, we've got the pub culture, you know, so you go down, you go into your local pub, tavern, and then have a drink. Is there anywhere like that that you can go and consume on premises? Uh, well, that's, uh, that's an interesting point. There's a debate going on right now, and I don't know exactly at what point the debate is on, but there are existing uh, cannabis clubs or vape lounges, for example, where one can go and consume cannabis, uh, you know, out of the public eye. Those exist, but as far as I know, uh, in many cases, they are still considered illegal. Uh, but uh, it's only logical, and it from there may have been some modifications uh, uh, most recently. I haven't looked, but uh, essentially, these places do need to exist. They are absolutely necessary because in some provinces, uh, for example, I live near the city of Toronto. And Toronto is a huge city with millions of people, and many of those people rent. And so if you don't want people smoking in rented apartments, for example, and you don't want them smoking in the park, for example, you don't want them doing – you have to have these clubs because – and not to mention – inevitably we are going to have huge amounts of tourists coming and enjoying cannabis in Canada and they need a place to go too. They're, the hotel is not going to allow them to do it so they have to go places. Uh, I know in Quebec, uh, the French capital, you are allowed to smoke cannabis in the street uh, or anywhere someone can smoke cigarettes and I believe that is the same with a bunch of other provinces uh, but again, it's an ongoing law and I hope that uh, eventually that there is as much uh, ability for people to consume cannabis. Uh, you know, like you have to achieve a balance. You don't want people to be puffing up everywhere, like on school playgrounds and such. But, but th there needs to be places where people can consume and, uh, and not get, you know, the stink eye from somebody else. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical 
medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Funny enough, you uh, you mentioned the word tourists just as I wrote down tourism because that was one of the big questions that I did want to get to is that presumably, like you said, you are going to expect cannabis tourism at some point. Uh, do you think that is that going to be a benefit to, to the country? Do you think people are okay with that? Or do you think some people are going to be like, oh, you know, open the gates here? Well, it's that's interesting. Uh, the Yes, I believe it's going to be absolutely huge uh, for Canada. I, I haven't, uh, you know, it's funny. I would even love to take a look at the numbers today, but I have no doubt that people came, especially from the United States, for legalization day. Um, October 17th is when everything was available. Uh, so, but moving forward, absolutely, I think tourism is going to be huge. Now, having said that, there are some countries that have actually warned their citizens not to consume cannabis in Canada, or they risk uh, be, uh, suffering uh, penalties when they get home. Uh, I, two of those countries are uh, China and South Korea have warned their citizens that if they travel to Canada, that they cannot consume cannabis, even though they will be in a legal jurisdiction to do so. So clearly that has ruffled the feathers of some way more conservative countries. Uh, I would like to think that as time goes on, uh, people are going to loosen their stance on it as more of the world adopts cannabis normalization. Uh, but for now, uh, there are, yeah, there are countries that are warning their citizens, don't do this. Uh, so, but, but tourism, I have no doubt that that sector is going to grow exponentially, specifically due to cannabis. I mean, Jamaica uh, is a perfect example. They've had cannabis tourists for years, even when it was illegal, and now it's legal. And, and I suppose a big question I need to ask is, what is the supply routes of this? So you've got a, a national policy, a federal policy. Who, who does the growing and the supplying? What, what are those chains? There is a group of about a hundred, uh, between a hundred and a hundred and eight uh, licensed producers in the country. Uh, most of them in Ontario. We have the highest concentration in Ontario. Uh, but so that those corporations are the ones who are designated to grow. Uh, legal cannabis under Health Canada standards and practices. And that number is raising all the time because the demand, as I said before, has drastically uh, outweighed supply. Uh, and so uh, Health Canada, if they want to keep this going and they want Canadians to not turn to the black market, they've got to keep the supply coming as fast as possible. So uh, they are doing whatever they can to, as they call it, streamline the process so Canadians can have more access to proper cannabis uh, moving forward. Uh, but right now, yes, it's those corporations, and, and I work for one of those corporations. And is it true that you've run out on, on the first week? Yes. Uh, there is. <laughs> there are products left. Like It's sort of like if you go on the website, most of it is gone. Uh, many of the stores ran out on the second day. Uh, wow. of cannabis, depending on where they were. There were lineups for four hours, uh, which is hysterical because, you know, the argument is if you want weed and cannabis, just go to the corner and say, I need marijuana and somebody will show up. Um, but everybody wanted a piece of the legal cannabis market. Uh, you know, I was in Quebec uh, on October 17th or uh, actually the 18th, the day after it happened. And I left the airport and I saw a lineup going down. It must have been three blocks. And I said to someone in line, what's this for? And they said, oh, the cannabis store is down there. And I was just <laughs> flabbergasted. It was amazing. So, so yes, the stores uh, are running very low. Uh, and, uh, and everybody is trying uh, very, uh, very – and also there's a big balance because a lot of these uh, licensed producers have to save some of their crop for uh, the medical system because arguably – not arguably actually. The people who take it for medicine need it more than the people who take it recreationally. Uh, so you have a good portion of the crops that go towards that, 
and then you have the rec market. And so, you know, eventually we'll find a balance, of course. Uh, but uh, right now, yes, we have a shortage. That's interesting as well, because I must admit, I didn't realize that, 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 that X amount had to be saved. So what, what is happening to the medical system now? Does it, is it, does it just essentially roll under the, the recreational system? Uh, well, the medical system uh, still obviously exists where people can buy, uh, th- they can get a prescription for cannabis uh, depending on what their ailment is. Uh, but in, in moral, for by moral standards, I don't know if, if the LPs have a specific mandate where they have to keep a certain amount available for patients, but most of them have said, well, we're going to commit a certain amount to medical um, but, uh, you know, it really depends on the licensed producer. These are private companies, uh, in the end and how they make their bottom line, uh, really is up to them. So, mm. you know, we'll see where it goes. I, I don't know what the future of the medical cannabis system in Canada is going to bring. Uh, I would like to think that doctors will get more educated, uh, because for example, somebody who has epilepsy or something of that nature, you know, it's there's if they don't know about the world of cannabis, they're swinging in the dark. And, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to go to a local store and buy what you think might work? Or would you rather talk to a medical professional who's educated on the matter and say, well, this strain and this kind and this method is what's going to treat your tremors? Uh, and I, if I was, you know, the, if I was one of those people, I would want to know that somebody was knowledgeable and told me what to do people that have had charges of uh, cannabis possession in the past are they still on on their criminal records of, or have they managed to be wiped or anything oh, like that oh yes that is a big issue in canada right now the liberal government has there is a big push for pardons uh for people who uh have on their criminal record um possession charges specifically uh, right. So I do believe that eventually, hopefully sooner than later, these people will uh, will receive the pardons that uh, that they need because it's really how do you have a how do you have a, a conviction for something that is not illegal anymore? It's it's ridiculous. Uh, and not to mention that they really need to move toward the pardon system much sooner than later because there's a huge hypocrisy happening right now in many uh, people, uh, for example, former law enforcement. Enforcement, uh, as well as a uh, former prime minister, his name is Brian Mulroney. They they were once incredibly uh, strong on cannabis. There were two uh, chiefs of police, uh, and as I said, a former prime minister who at one time uh, equated marijuana use to murder. Uh, and they did everything they could in their power to make marijuana even more illegal. Now that it's been legalized, all of these people have now gone into business. Uh, the former prime minister is, yeah, he's, he's on the board of a marijuana company. Uh, the former chief of police, his name is Julian Fantino. Uh, he has now gone into the business. He owns his own marijuana company and the hypocrisy is so thick you can cut it with a knife. So the fact that pardons have not been granted yet and these people have been allowed to enter the industry is just a a huge insult in my opinion and uh, and they, they as far i mean i know that the world doesn't work like this i don't wear rose colored glasses but in a perfect world everybody who has a possession charge uh, or conviction should receive a pardon before these people should be allowed to enter the business uh, but that's not the reality on the ground the, the hypocrisy of that is is growing i think because it's something we've seen in the united states with Boehner, uh, the former speaker of the house he was he was a massive proponent of keeping things how they were illegal, and now he's starting to get involved in the industry. And over here, you know, it's it's pretty well documented now. But our prime minister, her husband, has got shares in Legal Growing. We're mm-hmm. the biggest exporters and growers in the world, and yet the drugs minister Victoria Atkins and the prime minister both got husbands of conflict of interest in this subject. Right. And that's 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 and that's ridiculous. And the fact that uh, a, a powerful country like the United Kingdom is growing just swaths of legal uh, of cannabis and getting it sent away from the country. Meanwhile, you have people within the country who desperately need it. Uh, I mean, it's it's just it's incredible to me. Canada historically 
had a quite a big seed market, didn't you, for, for a fair amount of years. Is that still thriving or is that likely to go down now because of the legalization process? Uh, that's a good question. Yeah, we do have a lot of seeds. Um, I, I mean, I guess there is a big need for seeds. So I would assume that the seed market is only going to grow uh, from here because, you know, Canadians will need seeds to plant. Yeah, because it's an area that we're not really speaking of. And it's in this country as well, as much as cannabis is illegal, you are allowed to buy seeds. So to prohibit the home growing is actually quite difficult. Um, that's and one amazing. Of the, is that, that's actually true. You, you can buy seeds there, and, and but you can't grow them. Yeah, so you can do everything. But as soon as you germinate it, essentially, that's when you're breaking the law. So you can buy all the equipment, you can buy the seeds, and then you just have to sit there and look at it. <laughs> that's what, wow. what the law oh is saying. Oh, my God. Yeah. So you can see how the loopholes are just easily navigated. And, and if you keep, as we both know, if you keep home grows discreet, they can go pretty undetectable. So of course. It, you could argue that it's, it's they, they know what's going on. And certainly the police resources are so stretched here that a lot of times that they just can't tackle home grows. And we're seeing now more and more police forces across our country just turning a blind eye, just saying, look, it's not worth our priority. Um, and, and rightfully so. Exactly. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think many people that can argue with that. And on that point on its own, uh, what what has been the law enforcement response to this is have they embraced it or has it taken some load off of them? Uh, at the beginning, the law enforcement across the country, a lot of them were complaining that legalization was coming too fast and that they wouldn't be prepared uh, to um, to implement the things that they needed to implement. But, I mean, all in all, they were forced to accept it. So like it or not, they basically took the stance of, well, this is happening, and we take our directives from the, the government and from the justice system. So, um, you know, they haven't been uh, for or against uh, either way. Uh, interestingly enough, their powers have been greatly increased because even though Canada has legalization, we actually have much stricter penalties now for breaking those laws than we ever have before. Uh, like, for example, and I, I don't remember if these laws have been modified since the last I heard, but if you give or sell cannabis to a minor on the books, you could potentially get up to 14 years in jail, which is far more severe than what used to happen uh, for trafficking. Uh, so that's one thing. And then there are other laws. For example, the, the driving, the impaired driving laws are just uh, completely, right now, they're just completely archaic. Um, they have a system in place where uh, I believe that you can't drive with more than five nanograms of THC in your blood. And uh, reportedly, they have a machine that can test that. Now, I can tell you that anybody who is a regular cannabis consumer or anybody who uses cannabis as medicine can have five nanograms in their blood at any given time and still not be impaired. So it and but yet the police are allowed to stop you even if they don't have reasonable suspicion. So you have these patients who are being pulled over, for example, and tested for marijuana, and they will be either at the limit or over what would be considered the legal limit. And nobody has taken into account that uh, they are not they are not basically covering cannabis the way it should be covered. Like cannabis is absorbed, as I said before, through the endocannabinoid system, and yet they're testing it in blood levels, which is what you would do for alcohol. So those tests need to be modified because a lot of people are going to get charged for no reason. So, so yeah, I'd imagine there's going to be a lot more tweaks that you're going to need to make as you go through this process, as you keep going along, mm -hmm. surely. Oh, yeah. Court challenges, lots of money spent, but we'll get there. And also, one of the key areas I, I really want to focus on as well is, is that you had, you got packaging rules over there, haven't you? So you've got, I believe, you've got this this little red emblem on it that, that gives you essentially a health warning and, and an age restriction. Um, is that is that the case? Yes, it's the case, and it's ridiculous. Uh, the packaging, firstly, the packaging is excessive, absolutely excessive, uh, the amount of packaging that has to be used for cannabis. But you also have, yes, of course, a hazardous a, a sticker uh, that goes on the packages. Uh, there is very, very strict rules that you are not allowed to brand cannabis as a product. This has been a real problem for the legalization, like for the, the, the legal producers, mainly because the legal producers as private companies need to be able to establish a brand and com 
compete with one another and people, consumers, need to be able to differentiate products and determine which products work for them and which don't. The packaging that exists is so plain and has so many warnings on it, you would think that you were buying a bag of plutonium. Uh, when, when you go to these stores, it's, it's, it blows my mind. I, I saw like someone open one of these packages and it's essentially, you think you'd need a hazmat suit and here he is pulling out dried plant cuttings. Uh, so, you know, that again will change. I mean, I know it sounds laughable now, but I have, I would be, I would be shocked if 10 years from now, these incredibly conservative laws still exist. Because, you know, the government had to dip their toe in. They couldn't just say, well, now weed is legal and you can buy it from a dude that looks like Bob Marley on every street corner. They couldn't jump in that far uh, because ultimately we're a socialist country. Uh, when you go to U.S. states, for example, that have legalized recreational marijuana, uh, those states, uh, because of the, uh, the fact that it's a capitalist-style economy out there, people have been allowed to experiment, products have been allowed to come out, uh, different ways to sell have been allowed to, to come out. So they, even though it's illegal at the federal level in the U.S., they are actually far beyond us when it comes to marketing and uh, and and delivery of uh, of cannabis, uh, but but again, I mean, we will get there. You know, we just legalized uh, last month. This is where I think that the UK are probably going to look to you more than the United States because I think that the way that you've done this very very cautiously, as you mentioned with packaging and things like that, I think that's what we're going to respond to better than than potentially that capitalistic motif of having brands and things like that. So it's. It's, it's no doubt your government are having to be cautious for the sake of the precedent that it set it internationally. Do you feel like you're you're at the uh, the the absolute spearhead of this movement now? Yeah, I I do, and it's uh, something that uh, as a Canadian I do take great pride in, having been uh, from the country that first legalized medical cannabis in some form, and now I mean obviously Uruguay beat us to the punch, but if you're talking about G7 countries, for example, the fact that we are taking the plunge despite international criticism and saying this is right for us and essentially flying in the face of these international treaties that were created uh, under a uh, an umbrella of fear and paranoia. The fact that we were the first uh, in that realm to say, well, regardless of all that, we're still going to do it, that is a good, a huge sense of pride. And, you know, I was in Canada uh, the night of legalization. I was in Toronto and I headed to a party uh, that was, uh, you know, and so everywhere I went, I saw people uh, unabashedly lighting up uh, and essentially smoking uh, marijuana or consuming it in some form and doing it without fear of persecution. So being able to be in my hometown and actually see that, you know, instead of seeing people, for example, hiding in the alleyways um, was a real uh, that it was really something to see, and you know it, we woke up the next morning. And, oh, it was yeah, it was very strange, and society didn't fall apart. Go figure, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and and just remind us on your book. So, what's it called? Where can we get it? And what's it about? Uh, well, so the book is called "The Wild West: Canada's Legalization of Marijuana." And uh, it is available now on Amazon, uh, and uh, people can obviously look for it there, both in print and in uh, digital format. And, uh, and it covers uh, prohibition all the way to the finish line, which was October 17th, 2018. Thank you so much, John, for joining us on that one. So much to learn in Canada, and there's going to be so much more to come on that, I think. I don't think we're done with that issue yet. A one-on-one thank you. Thank you to Nikki and Tristan, the producers who do so much for this podcast and officially award-winning producers. We can say that, can't we? Thank you so much to John Harris, our Distraction Pieces Network social media operator. Listen to his podcast, The Dream Factory. It's fantastic. Genuinely one of my favourites. Thank you to all the Distraction Pieces Network team. They're fantastic. Go listen to them all. They're brilliant. Thank you to John, our social media worker at Leap UK. And this is where I've got to remember what they are. I should probably write this down for the future, shouldn't I? At UK Leap on Twitter, at UK Leap on Instagram, at UKLeap.org on Facebook, and at UKLeap.org on our website. And if I'm wrong, go check them out and tell me, correct me. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you again soon. Bye. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how-
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.